Let's pray. Father, your Son told us if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Father, I need to be empowered filled with Your Spirit to preach with power, not of my own, but Yours. And Lord, these listeners, these hearers, need the help of the Spirit to listen, to pay attention, to believe, to cling, to see with the eyes of faith, to to repent. Oh Lord, we need You. So please, Father, we ask as children to send Your Spirit that we might be helped. In Jesus' name, Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll start with verse 1 and read through verse 7. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the loved and called of God is what this message is titled. And what we just read, you you see a bit of a, a step It begins with the author of this message, Paul, the slave of Christ. And and then it moves into the message itself, that that, that this is the, the, the gospel, this message that was promised beforehand through the prophets in the scriptures. And the focus of this message, the focus of this gospel is concerning the Son. And who is the Son? Well, He is both man, descended from David according to the flesh, and He's God, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And then we're told about the purpose. The purpose of this message is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. And now Paul concludes this introduction with the audience to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. To all those in Rome. Now, the church, the, the, the church 
is the collective gathering, the huge number of all people throughout all ages who have loved God, who have trusted in God, who have clung to the promises of the coming Messiah or witnessed the present Messiah or we look back to the Messiah who came. This is the collective number of all the called out ones. This is the universal church. But Paul is not writing a letter to the universal church. I mean, you see it right there, right? In verse seven, to all those where? In Rome, he's not writing to Christians in general. He is writing to specific saints who are in Rome. Well, what does this teach us? There is the universal church and there is the local church. Paul believed in the local church. He wrote letters to certain communities of believers in certain cities and Maybe you do this when you have to write something and you don't want to have to rewrite it. What, what do we do with our computers or with our cell phones? We copy and what? And we paste, right? I mean, it's very helpful when I'm getting a message from Kelvin from WhatsApp and I copy and paste. Well, that's not what Paul did. When you look at the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, it's very different from the letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. And when you look at what he wrote to the Colossians, that's not the same thing that he wrote to the Philippians. There is truth. It's for all believers. We don't have to be uh, Romans or Ephesians or from Thessalonica in order to receive the truth of the word of God. But you see it there. There was an intended audience in certain cities. Why? Because it was not just the universal church that the Lord was concerned about, but the local church. The local church. Christians, this audience that was given this letter, these are people who belonged to a local church. They were committed to a local church. Are you? To all those in Rome, Have you begun to smell the aroma in the air lately? Things are changing more and more all around us. And one of the things that stands out in our day and time is the complete lack of commitment in people. Have you seen it? I, I, I looked it up that the average, the average amount of time that someone, millennials typically, but not just them, whose average amount of time they spend at a job, two and a half years. And that's on the high side. Months to maybe a year. As opposed to those who are in their 50s and 60s and they spend decades at a job. You see a huge contrast, a lack of commitment. But it's not just when it comes to employment. It's also when it comes to, well, what are you going to study in school? I'm going to try this. Eh, I'm not that. I'm going to try this. I'm not that. There's just a lack of commitment, a lack of settling and sticking. And you see it in relationships. People just dispose of one another. They, they throw away relationships. It's just not worth it. I mean, we live in a time where people will block you, cancel you, and cut you off if you disagree with them about a vaccine or a mask or the wrong political party or whatever. Relationships where people used to fight for them and endure and stick it out. Remember, there was a time when people thought it was worth it to put up with what comes for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of the person. But you look around now and people just dispose of one another like paper plates. 
And this lack of commitment finds itself even in our hearts at times. I mean, have you found in your relationships where someone has cut you off, family member, a friend, for some small matter, and you look back and you say, was there nothing worth keeping in this relationship? Or have you done that to someone else? Have you been tempted to do that? We are facing an epidemic, a pandemic of a lack of commitment. And the local church will test yours and mine. It will test our commitment level, won't it? I mean, let's shoot straight. (laughs) Let let me ask you this as I ask myself, as our brother talked about the double-edged sword. Just how committed are you to the local church? It doesn't have to be this church, whatever church you are a part of. And I don't mean your commitment to the universal church. And I don't mean your commitment to your ministry or to evangelism. But how committed are you to the local church? This community of individual, unique people in an area that you have aligned yourself to, as it says in Colossians, to be considered one of us. Just how committed are you to the local church? Not too long ago, I took my two oldest sons, to Texarkana. Y'all know about the trip. We got to go see um, Russell and them. And uh, on the way back, we were talking about uh, dating versus courtship. My sons wanted the definition. And I said, well, basically, it's kind of like an experiment, you know, a science experiment where two people say, okay, we're going to try this out. No real direction. We're just going to see how it goes. But if someone does something that the other one doesn't like, so long. That is, unfortunately, the way some people, many people in our day, treat the local church. Someone offends them, they're gone. No opportunity to work it out, no opportunity to forgive or be forgiven, no opportunity to repent or to, work or to talk it out, no word, no notice, no farewell, they just leave. And what is this? This reveals the heart of the person. We're not talking about heresy. We're not talking about immorality. We're talking about offenses that arise and a lack of commitment to work it out. How committed are you to the local church? Think of those in Rome as they were facing the persecution and they're dealing with all of these Jews and Gentiles, all the difficulty, the rich, the poor, the slave, the master, they're all gathered together, people from different backgrounds, and you're going to have issues And they had to work it out. How's your attendance to the meetings? Here's a question. How easy is it for you to make an excuse to not attend a meeting? You may say, hey, but I have so many things to do. I have things going on in my life. I'm busy here, there. Trust me, I understand. (laughs) I just don't have time. Fair enough. But parents, think about this. You have a 16-year-old son or daughter, and they started their first job. 
You're so proud of them. About to start getting in their minds. Money doesn't grow on trees, right? <laughs> they got to work for it. They may not be so quick to spend it on this and that. And they, they, they're starting their job and they're excited about it. And, you know, OK, you got their uniform form and everything is good. And you go in their room and they're in bed and you're like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I called in. Well, why? I was tired. You know, traffic is rough. I got a lot on my mind. I got a headache. I mean, how many of you parents would say, that's cool, stay in bed? He's like, get up out that bed. <laughs> this is not how you learn responsibility. You got to push through. Well, when it comes to the local church, would you allow your child's excuses for the job? Are those the same excuses you make for not coming to a meeting? There are athletes who wouldn't think to miss a practice or a game. There are employees who have perfect attendance. There are students who wouldn't dare to think of missing a class. But when it comes to the local church, it seems like this commitment level is missing. Is this you? If so, what does this communicate? What are you saying when every other commitment in your life gets the best of you? But the local church, just, just whatever's left. Malachi 1.6 says this, A son honors his father and a servant, or rather a slave, his master. <laughs> if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? Now listen to this. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. You see what he's saying? He said, what you're giving to me, the Lord of hosts, the God who made you, your governor wouldn't accept it. And isn't it true that we could give the best to a job or to a class or to a coach, but we wouldn't give the same to the Lord? Is making money and getting grades and scoring points more important than what we do as the fellowship of the gathered saints? Every one of us has to examine our own commitment level. Now, obviously, am I saying that if you miss a meeting, you're not committed? No, because I'd be guilty, my family would be guilty. That would just be unreasonable and irrational. But you hear what's being said here, right? A commitment. Not dating the church, but in covenant. When it comes down to it, are you really committed are you willing to endure with us through the difficulties in relationships? I'm going to step on your toes. You're going to step on mine. It happens. But will we push through it for the sake of unity? Will you press on with us through trials and disappointments? Or will you abandon ship when someone says or does something that you don't agree with? The point that I'm making here is the local church challenges us all in our commitment level. It does something else. It confronts this other terrible mindset that is very popular in our world today. Me 
God and my Bible. The Lone Ranger Christian. Now, I know many of us didn't grow up during the time of the Lone Ranger, uh, but he was a ranger who was alone. He just kind of did his own thing. Maybe he had Tonto, I'm not sure. But you get the point, right? He was on his own, doing his own thing, and there are many in our world, and not just, not just the average churchgoer, but there are tel- t- uh, not televangelists, evangelists who go from city to city preaching the gospel downtown here and there. But then you ask them, are you a part of a local church? Are you submitted to elders and authority? And they say, the world is my church. Just me, God, and my Bible. Here's how one theologian put it. I didn't say he's a good theologian, but a theologian nonetheless. But the greater, far more glorious truth, dear friend, is that you are the church. Right? Because that's what's said. The church is not the building. You're the church. That God is all around and ever-present and within you. And so, wherever you find yourself this morning, that ground is holy. When your mind and heart are oriented toward the things of God, your very life is an act of worship. This Sunday, you may be snuggled in your bed with your family and dog, telling stories and giggling away the morning. You may be jogging with your best friend through the wooded paths, just coming to life in the early morning sun. You may be driving through the empty back roads with the roof open, blasting the 80s metal that reminds you of when you had hair for the breeze to blow through. You might be having breakfast with friends, giving thanks for life and family in the day. You might be in the garden, your knees pressed to the damp soil, smelling the leaves just popping up through the ground. These places are all sacred. They are waiting sanctuaries for God to be seen and heard and experienced. Is this true? I mean, you can have church wherever you are because you're the church. You take the church with you. So there you are, the sky's before you. You're in a deer blind waiting to get some food for your family and there you are experiencing church. It's a very common mindset. But is it right? Is it biblical? Well, let me confront this mindset with this reality. Every single illustration that God has given us for the church, requires community. What is the church called? The body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So collectively the body and you are a member of that body. The flock of God, 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The building of God, 1 Corinthians 3, 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Stones that make up the building. Or the children of God. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You cannot be the body by yourself. You are a member of the body, but not the body itself. You may be a hand, you may be an ear, but the body is made up of how many members? Many members. You cannot be the flock of God by yourself. You may be one of the sheep, but you don't make up the whole flock. 
You cannot be the building by yourself. Again, you may be one of the stones or you may be a window. What about the bride of Christ? Well, here's a question. Does God have multiple brides? No. How many brides does Christ have? One bride. And we collectively make up the bride of Christ. It's not, well, there's a bride of Christ over there and a bride of Christ over here. We collectively make up the bride of Christ as the universal church functioning in local churches. And if you are by yourself, just you and your Bible, how do you know if you are in false doctrine? How do you know if you have started to embrace heresy, dangerous teachings, dangerous theologies? How do you know this if there's no one, no community for you to talk to and wrestle with things through? You know, the more that we operate in this community, the more we hear one another. When we come to prayer meetings and you begin to pray, the more we can hear what you think and how you pray. And if there's something that's off, here you have the, the, the collective spirit-led wisdom of the church to say, you know, brother, I heard you say this, and I just wanted to ask you, what do you mean by that? Because it sounded like this, oh, thank you, because I was going that way and I thought it was right. But here the church is able to keep us in sound teaching. How do people fall away from the faith? It's a pattern. It's a slow fade. They begin to come to less and less meetings. They begin to isolate themselves, separate themselves. How do people get mixed up with Hebrew Israelites? How do people who once belonged to a solid and sound church begin to embrace Roman Catholicism? How does that happen? And you read their testimonies. You read their stories. You hear the accounts. Some of you know these kind of people personally. And it's always the same thing. They begin to come less and less. They begin to be involved less and less. They pull back and pull back. And then the enemy begins to do damage on their minds. Why do we look in mirrors? I was looking in a mirror this morning. Why do we do that? Because there might be something wrong, right? And you don't want to come to church with gook and stuff in your eyes, right? Because you don't want to do that. You don't want to have sleep and stuff. You want to wash your face and make sure that everything is right. Your hair is right. Well, we serve as mirrors for one another. We help one another to make sure that you're, you're thinking right about God, that you're handling God's Word correctly, that you're looking at life accurately because we have a tendency to be unbalanced, don't we? We, we tend to one side or the other, too strict or too lax. Legalism, antinomianism, lawlessness. And here's the church to help us together, not just the pastor, the church, all of you, individually members of this body, we help to keep one another straight. The local church is necessary in this. We've had some very strange beliefs come through our church. <laughs> People who have come in saying some very strange things. And we found every single one to the man was not committed to a local church. But it's not just doctrine. What, what did Paul say? For Timothy to watch his doctrine and what else? His life closely. See, you could have great theology and terrible life. 
We had a young man who claimed to be a believer because he knew this doctrine and that doctrine, but his life was a mess. And when the brothers tried to confront this young man about his lifestyle, he attacked them. Why? Because he had the mindset, as long as I know these things, I'm not accountable to anybody. We had another young man come through who wanted to make a very bad decision and said, well, let's bring this to the church so that they can all be involved in judging according to the word of God. And what did that young man do? He left the church rather than submit to the wisdom of the church. Why? Because this dangerous mindset of a lack of commitment, a lack of accountability to the church. I don't need them. I got the spirit. I got my Bible. Me and God, we're good to go. Are you an independent Christian? Bouncing from church to church. Listen, you got to make sure you find the right one. But this was written to the church in Rome because it was important to be committed to the local church. And brothers and sisters, this is how you know that God has given you gifts. I mean, how do you know if you have the gift of helps? Because in the local church, when you seek to walk in that way and love the believers by helping them, the people are helped and they can confirm it. And it's encouraging because you have this testimony. The Spirit of God has given me this and I see it at work in the lives of people. But nowadays people just raise themselves up. They appoint themselves. And it's unhealthy. But what does the Scripture say? Why did the Spirit of God give us the gifts of the Spirit in the first place? According to 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. We weren't given gifts for ourselves. We were given gifts for one another. And how can we do the one another's if we're alone? We can't. Two more things about this before we move on. Um, With the rise of COVID and churches shutting down, The rise in listening to online sermons has grown. And praise God for online sermons. Uh, I'm so thankful for this collection of God-led, spirit-empowered, powerful preaching. But some people think because they listen to John MacArthur every week that he's their pastor. Imagine this. You watch your favorite TV show. Growing up, we used to watch things like Family Matters and Full House and stuff like that. Imagine if I'm watching this show and I'm like, that's my dad. I watch him every week. Exactly. It would be laughter. But think of the madness to say, that's my pastor. I listen to him every week. He doesn't know you and you don't know him. You don't know his life. He doesn't know yours. And again, I know this is not y'all because y'all are here, but for the sake of saying it, right? Another thing, social media is not your church. There's this thing where people just, they grab a Bible, they got a camera, and they have followers, and they think, this is my church. Social media is not your church, and the online preacher is not your pastor. We have to have an attitude of commitment. 
And it's hard work to be the church. Living among one another is hard. Forgiving one another is hard. Asking others to forgive you is hard. And if you have the mindset, if you offend me, I mark you as the one who offended me and I'm never going to forget it. I'm always going to walk around you with tiptoes because you did that thing that one time. That does not lead to unity of the Spirit. R.C. Sproul said this in closing on this point. Some of us may be deceiving ourselves in terms of our own conversion. We may claim to be Christians, but if we love Christ, how can we despise His bride? How can we consistently and persistently absent ourselves from that which He has called us to join, His visible church? I offer a sober warning to those who are doing this. You may, in fact, be deluding yourself about the state of your soul. The audience was the local church in Rome, and these were people who were committed to one another for the sake of Christ. But what else is true about these people? To all those in Rome who are, what does it say? Loved by God. Now, you may say, to all those who are loved by God, isn't everybody? (laughs) And that makes it sound like everybody's not loved by God. To those who are loved by God, I mean, John 3.16 says, for God so loved who? The world. The world. So what is this business about those who are loved by God? And think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5.43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be your uh, sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see what's happening here, right? He's saying God loves his enemies. So if you would be sons of the father and daughters of the father, then you should look like your father and love your enemies. It is a test of our salvation. Do we love our enemies? Because God does. And how does God do it? He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The context, of course, is loving enemies. So, if God loves his enemies, doesn't that mean that he loves everyone? So, does God love the Apostle Paul in the same way that he loves Nero? Does God love those in hell the same way he loves those in paradise? I mean, is there levels to this? Does God love everyone the exact same? to the same degree, in the same way. God loves everyone, but not the same way. And not to the same degree. Now, I said that, I haven't proved it yet. But that's the claim, and here I go to prove it. Throughout the Scriptures, you find the Lord talking about His people in a unique way. For example, uh, if you can turn there if you like, or you can write them down for a later Berean study. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. 
Here is the Lord declaring His love and the reasons for His love. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see that? He set his love on you and chose you. What is the implication? What, what, what conclusion can we draw from this, children? The inferences. This is one of the difficult things in, in uh, education. Inferencing. Okay, he set his love and he chose them. That indicates that he has not chosen all. And that whatever level of love he set upon them is different from what he set upon everyone else. Deuteronomy 10.15 Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. There's, that's even more, right? Not because of any good in them, not because they were more powerful, but God, because of his own will, his own pleasure, his own purposes, set his love and affection upon this group of people. And it says, above all peoples. Isaiah 43, 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Jeremiah 31, 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This is very personal. Malachi 1, 2, 3, 3. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have what? Hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now you may say, wait, 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 wait. Isn't this written to Israel? Isn't this written to the Jews? I mean, what does this have to do with us? Well, I'd ask you a question in return. Which Jews? All of them? 1 Corinthians 10, 1 says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. These are the Israelites who were taken out of Egypt through the Red Sea, fed with manna, led by day in a pillar of cloud, at night with a pillar of fire, drank from the rock, that rock truly pointing to the fulfillment of the rock being Christ. They wandered in the wilderness. And what does it say? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, 
for they were overthrown in most of them. So who are these Jews that the Lord loves so much? Galatians 6, 14. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, what rule? Salvation in Christ, faith in Christ, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. As Romans says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Christian, do you realize that you are more of a Jew than those who are at the Western Wall right now? You are the true Jew. You are the true Israel. You are the true people of God. So those that God was talking to in the Old Testament, that he, they are precious in his sight and that he has loved them, this is the remnant. This is the elect. These are the believers. This is the people of God. You are an Israelite not because of your DNA or Ancestry.com, but because of adoption and regeneration. And when we look in the New Testament, we find the same language. Again, we're talking about does God love all the same? Because the language of this verse says to those who are in Rome, who are loved by God. John 14, 21, listen to the Lord Jesus. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Often people say that God's love is unconditional, but we just heard conditions. If, then, those who love me will be loved by me. And how is anyone going to love God? We heard it this morning, the love of God is poured into our hearts. John 16, 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Does everyone love Christ? No. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me. Those who love Christ are loved by the Father in this unique way. Praise God, he lets his Son and his reign fall and shine upon all men. Everyone gets to enjoy the great generosity of God by having music and art and food and family relationships, the, the ability to work and earn money, to enjoy nature and creation, the, uh, what, what do they call it, common grace, <laughs> the amazing kindness and love of God to all people. But there is something unique here. There is something distinct here. There is something special here. There is something that is only for the church. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 For we know, brothers, here it is again, loved by God that He has chosen you. 
2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Here it is, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In Ephesians 2.4, wow. But God, being rich in mercy because of what kind of love? Because of the, who knows it? Great love. Not just love, but because of the great love which which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Who is this group that receives this great love? You see it? With which He loved us. Those who have been made alive, those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, those who were dead and have been made alive together with Christ. This is the church. And every husband who loves God and seeks to follow Christ knows this verse by heart. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved who? The church. Is everyone in the church? Is everyone a part of the church? You see it again. As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for who? For her. For her. And if you look in your own life, you know this is true. God commands you to love your enemies. God commands you to love your neighbor. God commands you to love the brethren. Husbands, God commands you to love your wives. Wives, God commands you to love your children. Parents, God, I'm sorry, wives, yeah, that too. Wives, God commands you to love your husbands. And parents, God commands you to love your children. And it would be sinful for you to take the love that you're supposed to give to your wife or your husband and give it to your neighbor. That would be wrong, wouldn't it? you immediately feel the distinctions. It's like what Jesus said when He said, the only way you can be My disciple is if you hate your father and your mother and even your own life. Well, what does He mean? Does He mean that you're supposed to have a hatred when He says, don't hate your enemy? You can hate your father, your mother? What is the point of that? He's saying the level of love that you're supposed to have for the Lord makes the love that you have for your parents look like hatred in comparison. Likewise, God loves you, Christian, with a unique and a special and a glorious love that is only for those who are His, for His bride, for His children, for His chosen saints. How much does God love you? John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. John 17, 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What is he saying? 
the love that the Father had with the Son, this eternal love, this perfect love, this infinite love, this divine love, the Lord God, the triune God says, that's how I love you, Christian. It's amazing. And this love is so great, so powerful. I mean, does it still amaze you? Have we gotten used to these truths that it doesn't knock us off our feet anymore? You need supernatural strength to comprehend and grasp just how much God truly loves you, Christian. What is the proof of this? Ephesians 3.14. Again, to those who are in Rome who are loved by God, this is a unique love for the children of God. And if you're not a child of God, come into the family. He calls you. Come on in. You are welcome. Ephesians 3.14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. This is Holy Spirit, supernatural God power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Children, do you think that you could swim to the bottom of the ocean? Why not? It's too deep? Do You need air. <laughs> well, listen. The love of God is deeper than the ocean. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you think you could go out at night and see Jupiter? You say, maybe you see like a little twinkling... But you can't see it with the naked eye. Why? It's too far. It's too high. The love of God is higher than the farthest galaxy. It's wider. It's broader. It's deeper. It's richer than anything we can comprehend. So much so that we need the Holy Spirit to give us supernatural strength to believe it. I mean, do you believe that God loves you, Christian? Do you really believe it? As the hymn writer says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. His love is so infinite, it's so deep, it's so beautiful, it's so rich, it's so great that we will spend eternity exploring it. This is the love that God has for you, Christian. This is the love. It's special. I mean, imagine how unspecial it would be, husbands. You go to your wife and you say, I love you, but no more than the stranger on the street. Men, 
Do not try this at home. It will not go well for you. It would be completely unspecial. It would almost be a slap in the face. No, this is supposed to be different. (laughs) Christians, collectively, you are the bride of Christ and He loves you. He loves you more. He loves you more. In all of His perfection, in all of His beauty, in all of His majesty, He loves, not tolerates, not endures, not puts up with, but He delights. You are precious to Him. He desires you. He loves you. Sinful you. Flawed you. Weak you. This is meant to move us to worship. He knows what you did yesterday, and if you are His, He loves you with the same love that He loves His Son, in whom He is well pleased. Do you doubt His love? Do you wrestle with believing it because you're going through a trial or going through some suffering or dealing with some difficulty? Maybe you've been disappointed. You asked Him to answer a prayer and He hasn't given you what you wanted. But think of this. God sent His own Son for you. He crushed Him under His righteous wrath for you. What more could He do? I mean, what else could He possibly do to prove to you that He loves you? What else could He possibly do to convince you of His great affection for you when He sent His Son? His Son humbled Himself, laid down His life, obeyed the law on you, and then the Father pours out the waterfall of His lava, quenching His fiery anger for you to adopt you, to justify you so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be welcomed in. He did all of that, not because you're so great or you're so obedient or you're so cute or you would choose him. No, he did it because he chose to love you in spite of you. Is it not the insult of insults to say, I don't believe you love me after he's done so much? Well, lastly, this morning, not only to those who are in Rome, to those who are loved by God, but to those who are called to be saints, to those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, called. And again, doesn't God call everyone to be saints? Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Isn't that a call? It is a call from God to who? Everybody. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? There it is again. There's another call from God. Or oh, we heard it this morning, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the book of Revelation ends with a call. The spirit and the bride say what? Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty 
Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Isn't this a calling for all men and all women and all children to come and belong and believe? It is. Doesn't God call all men to repent and believe in His Son? He does. So what is Paul saying here? To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Is it God calls everyone and some just don't answer the phone? I mean, is, is that what's happening here? Is it true that God wants everyone to come to Him, but He just doesn't have the power to make them come? Or He's unwilling to do anything about it? Uh, the, the will of man is too strong for God to, to overstep? One pastor put it this way, even though he already knows most of mankind will reject him, he doesn't give up on any of us until we take our last breath. It's almost as if he's hoping to be surprised by someone he hadn't planned for. Is that true? Is God hoping that people will choose him? Is he standing on the side of the road just begging people, come on, please believe in me, please believe in me, but people are just ignoring him and he doesn't have power to do anything about it? We're talking about the true and living God, the King of glory. We're talking about the same God who called this entire universe into being by the word of his power. And he upholds this world by the word of his power. We're talking about the same God who caused the Red Sea to split and become dry ground. And when scriptures speak about the voice of God, it is a glorious thing. Job 37, 3. Under the whole heavens he lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightning when his voice is heard. Do you obey his voice? Psalm 68, 32. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Psalm 46, 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. And Psalm 29, 3 through 9, just this amazing collection of passages about the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. I mean, does this sound like a weak and powerless God to you? His voice is powerful. And Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the sea and all the deep. Are we to believe that the Almighty King of Kings sees men and He wants them to come to Him, but He is powerless to make it happen? No, when men think that they can run from God like Jonah, He sends storms to bring them back. When sinners think that they can fight against God like Saul, He knocks them to the ground and says, You will be mine. 
I mean, did Lazarus have a choice to stay in the tomb when the Lord Jesus said, come forth, Lazarus? Could he have said, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I have obviously not. What is this call? This is the call of God's grace. It is a summons. This is not a scam likely call. Y'all get those calls, right? Scam likely. Ah, maybe I'll answer it. Maybe I won't. Maybe I feel like messing with a telemarketer there. Ah, you can do that if you want. That's not what this is. This is the summons of the King of Kings who by his grace and by his spirit and by his power says, come to me. And everyone who he calls with this call comes. You remember your life when you were running your own way, doing your own thing. You were resisting his grace. You were resisting his word. The gospel had been told to you. The Bible was available to you, but you had no interest. You had no mind for it. You didn't care about your soul or anything else. And then what happened? The gospel was preached. Was it a different gospel? No, it was the same one. But what happened? Something changed in you. The word of God became alive. Was there another chapter added to it? Certainly not. Something happened. Something awakened. Your heart broke over your sin. Your eyes opened to see the glory of Christ and what he was worthy of. You saw life as it really is. Reality. What was that? That was the spirit of God giving you a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone because the heart of stone rejects God, but a heart of flesh embraces him. The spirit of God made you alive, opened you up, woke you up, gave you faith to the point where you called out to him, what must I do to be saved? That is the call. And he calls and we come. That is what he's done. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the call of God. Well, the last point is, what has he called you to do? What has he called you to be? He says that you were to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be what? Saints. Why did he call you? Not the wide call that goes out to all people, but people ignore it. No, this is the call that brought you in. Why did he bring you in? What does saint mean? It means set apart. You know what this is? This is like This is like when a man is convinced that there's one woman for him and he approaches that woman and says, "Will you spend the rest of your life with me?" That's what the Lord has done. He has come to us, called us to himself for himself. He called you out to set you apart from everyone else so that you could love him and serve him and walk with him and so that he could lavish upon you the greatness of his grace and lavish you with the wonders of his riches and the person of his son. He set you apart for him. Not for this world. Not to chase money or lust or pride or fame or anything else. 
you were created for Him and He set you apart for Him and He sent His Son to die so that you could come to Him. He made sure you were forgiven so that there would be no barrier between you and Him. He's done all of this so that you and He would be together forever. Are you faithful to the One who called you? Are you giving all for Him? He's given all for you. And the way that you show your set-apartness, this commitment to the local body, which is His body, being amazed that He would love you. And that fuels you into a life of sanctification, holiness, righteousness, and purity for His name's sake. Is any worth it to surrender all? Have you? Do you hear His voice calling you this morning? You're here. You don't know Him. You haven't come in. But do you hear His voice calling you this morning? His sheep hear His voice and they follow Him. They listen to Him. Are you still resisting the Lord? Are you still rejecting Him? What are you waiting for? What prevents you from coming in? What holds you back from surrendering all to Christ? Is it some sin? Life will be over very soon and you will have eternity to pay for that sin. It will give you nothing but misery. What are you waiting for? No other Savior is coming. We talked about that weeks ago. What are you waiting for? Do you not know enough about Christ? Do you not know of His great love? Do you not know of the cross? Do you not know of His blood? What are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you hear. Harden not your hearts. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Lord willing, next week we will look at what it means for grace and peace to be to you. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You call us out of the world to come into Your love with the rest of Your called out ones in the local church. Father, forgive us for our lack of commitment, our lack of faithfulness to Your people and ultimately to You when You've commanded us to do the one another's. May we be amazed by Your great love for us and walk in holiness because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.